Folks, so we are about to start chapter 6, Victory of Light, page 48. We've been talking about the limitations of the mind. So what are the limitations of the mind? The mind, as much as the mind informs us, it also limits us. Because our minds only have an understanding or only know what they know. We only know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. You know how I know? Because if you... Right, so our minds are limited. Thanks. Our minds are limited, and the reality is that if we live just based on our rational mind, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. I have a friend who tells me, who has told me in the past, that to her, the mind, her mind is the most dangerous place to be. It's like being in a dark alley at night, you know, and, and whatever. It's, like a, it's a dangerous place to be. The mind, as much as it gives us, as much as it guides us, as much as it, you know, is, is a great blessing, it also limits us, it also challenges us, and it also can provide a... It could, be, it could be basically a dangerous place. So with that being said, the way we've been framing the story of Hanukkah, from a Kabbalistic perspective, is the battle between the philosophy of the mind and the philosophy of the soul. Where the Greek philosophy said, the mind is where things are at. Philosophy, the mind, understanding... You know, rationalization. The mind is the measure of all things. I think, therefore, I am. Although these are not Greek philosophers that said them, but it's based on, it's derived from, huh? Derived, it's derived from Greek philosophy. So the Greeks, the Greek perspective was that it is the mind that is the deity. It's the mind that we should serve, it's the mind that should rule us, and they tried to impress that upon the Jewish people. They impressed that upon everybody. It was an enlightened movement. It was, let's get out of the dark ages. See, history repeats itself. This happened later as well, a few hundred years ago. But we'll get out of the dark ages, let's get enlightened, let's get wise, we've got wisdom, we've got philosophy. That's what the Greeks said. The Jews pushed back. And the Jews said, with all of your great philosophy, we have something, we have an attachment that we don't want to let go of so quickly. And that is the attachment to our faith, to our God. In a super rational way. And what that means is that it's not that we're going to do a mitzvah. It's not that we're going to fulfill God's will as, uh, as described in the Torah. Because it makes sense. Because it's rational, because it seems like a wonderful thing to do, but because God said so. Beyond rationale, beyond logic. The Greeks said, no, 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 no. What you mean to say, I'm sure, is that it makes sense to honor your parents. And the Jews said, no. I mean, it might also make sense to honor your parents. But we honor our parents... Because God told that to us in the Ten Commandments at Sinai. God said, honor your parents. Or in the old translation, God said, honor thy parents. That's a huge difference, right? Joking. So honor your parents. So that's why we honor our parents. It also makes sense 
but it's a divine decree. And we talked about a few weeks ago, how when you reduce everything to logic, suddenly you can rationalize everything. And anything. Honor your parents if it's based on logic. Yeah, only if my parents are parents. But not if they're not parents. You know what they did to me? That's a parent. It's not a parent. So if honor, if honor your parents is logical, so then my logic can break it. Because it made it. But if honor your parents is divine, it's going to be much harder to break. I mean, it's, you can still choose not to do it. But to break the essential commandment is going to be much more difficult. Does that make sense? Any rule that is man-made can also be man-broken. If morality is based on the mind, the mind can justify anything. Nazi Germany, as we've spoken about many times, justified, rationalized the mass murder of millions and millions of people. Because they said, oh, but they're not really people. Or they're less desirable. Or they're this or they're that. And throughout history, people have been oppressed simply because somebody rationalized and said, well, they don't deserve the same, etc. And in Judaism, in the Torah, in Kabbalah, it says, that's, that's, a, that's a big mistake. Because the, the quality of the human being, the reason why we don't kill, the reason why we don't oppress, etc., is simply because... We are created in the divine image. It's not our image. It's not that we're created in our image. And we don't want our image, our own image, to be destroyed. As a society, as a humankind, we don't want others to be harmed. It's not the basis for it. Because what if I do? The basis is because the human being is created in the divine image. And just like you didn't create the image, you can't, you should, you, you're not allowed to destroy the image either. It's a much more powerful, much more substantive, I don't want to use the word argument, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's a much much more substantive argument than just, well, we came to a conclusion, a consensus, that we shouldn't harm, steal, cheat, lie, dishonor parents, etc. Because if if it's based on consensus, the consensus can flip. It's based on a divine code... It's a higher authority. Like the old Hebrew national hot dogs. Oh, very good. Yes. Yes. All right. Good stuff. So the moment you think you got God figured out, super rationally, God may pull the carpet out from you. Now, it doesn't make it sound any better necessarily, but that's maybe a little bit of understanding. The truth is this requires a, a full discussion in and of itself. But the general notion is that the Greek philosophers came along and they said, look, you got to understand you got to understand, you got to use your mind, you got to be rational, enlightenment. Don't be stuck in old-fashioned, I don't understand why I'm doing this, but I'm still going to do it anyway. That's silly. That's the Dark Ages. That's what the Greek philosophers said. It's no different than the Enlightenment movement that swept Europe a few hundred years ago. Napoleon, etc. We're going to talk about it in this course. 
Jewish identity. The first class is about Napoleon. Napoleon seemed to have granted Jews immense and, and all peoples lots of freedoms. But the truth is, with freedom and enlightenment comes a big challenge in Judaism. You know what they say, you could be so open-minded that your brains can fall out. So you got you to be careful. Huh? <laughs> you got to be careful with all of the openness and all of the philosophy and rationalizing everything because you can lose the core of what binds you to God. Perfect. Okay. That's why I'm here. You said But if you do, I mean, it's like, it's not, I don't understand. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Torah tells us don't take life. So we don't take life. The Torah says if you're a court, if you're a judge, then you have another playbook in certain circumstances. But leave that for the judges. We're not judges, so we don't have to go by that playbook. Here's the playbook that we go by. God says don't take life. Straight up. Human life. Why? Because human life is created in the divine image. Don't steal. Don't take someone else's property. Why? Because God said, I gave it to them. You have no right to take it. If you do, you're stealing from me. Because I've decided who has what. Same reason why we shouldn't be jealous, why we shouldn't covet. Because coveting means you're saying to God, I don't agree with your plan. I think you got it wrong. See, I should have that house and that car and that, uh, and that wife, etc. You got it wrong, God. Let me make a quick modification to the script and we'll be okay. That means not connecting or surrendering to the will. It doesn't mean that you can't strive for something greater than what you have. It's fine. But to take it away from... The difference between coveting and working towards that Bentley is do I want a Bentley or do I want Jim's Bentley? That's the, that's the difference. If I just want the Bentley, so work for it. Get it. If I want Jim's Bentley, why do I have to have his? I want his house, his car, his wife. Why? Get your own. Because it's not about your own. It's about not wanting someone else. And now suddenly you're playing God. You Let's take from here and give here. Bottom line is, not to get too far off course, the bottom, the bottom line here is, just to kind of get us all back focused here for chapter 6, is that the, at the core of the issue, the heart of the, of the conflict between the, the Greeks or the Syrian Greeks, the Syrians that were being pushed by the Greek philosophy, and the Jews at the, times of this, the time of the story of Hanukkah, the heart of the conflict is this debate between the mind and the soul, or the mind and God. And as we said in previous chapters, in chapter 5, the Greeks, Syrian Greeks, they would have been okay if we would have kept the Torah and mitzvot. If we would have said that the reason why we're doing it is because it makes sense to us. You want to keep Shabbat because you want a day off from work, it's a day of rest, a day to connect with family, a day to connect with community, a day to... No problem. Sounds wonderful. We may even adopt that. But you tell me that you're keeping Shabbat because God told you to? That's ridiculous. You don't want to mix meat and milk. Because health reasons, because one is red, one is white, one is, you know, one is red meat, one is white. You have reasons for it? Fine. No problem. Go ahead. Don't mix milk and meat. But you're... 
why, why, but why are they so, um, take such umbrage at Here's the deal. The way I explained it last week is that some people, everyone has a God, and serves that God irrationally. Some serve the rational irrationally. This is what we spent time on last week. It's because the same dedication of the Jew that the Jew has to God, the Greek had to the mind. The same dedication that the religious person has for God, the atheist has for not God. It's the same, it's a, there's a fervor. Not for everyone, I'm not painting everyone with a broad brush. But there are those that are so anti-God, anti-religion, that's a religion. Which is fine. It's like the story that Shays told about the guy that's eating pork on Yom Kippur and telling the rabbi, not only do I not observe Yom Kippur, I eat pork on Yom Kippur. So the rabbi says, okay, so we both observe Yom Kippur. You have your way, I have my way. But we're both religiously observing it somehow. You're doing something because of it. It's not like you're totally agnostic and apathetic to it. You're doing something for it. So here's the point. The Greeks were very religious. They were religious. They were passionate. Passionate about what? About the mind. They wanted everyone to adopt their philosophy. Because they thought they had the best, they had the best idea. Look, the, the Jewish sages, even then, had great respect for, Greek, for the Greek philosophers. The first language that the Torah was translated into was Greek. By the sages. So, the, the sages had great, and they said, why? It's a beautiful language. It's the most... It's the most it's, it w- it's a language that would do the most justice to the, to the nuances of the Torah. But notwithstanding that, the Greeks had their way of thinking that is completely at odds with Judaism. And that is that the mind is the ruler. And so, but you're saying, why did they care? Because they were religious about it. Because they were, they were religious, and they wanted converts. They, they were proselytizing. I think what you just said is that that the Greek gods were were created to support man. Right. You know, and, and whereas, 100%. you know. Jewish, we were here to support God. So, so basically, in, in the, the Greek gods basically were there to fulfill our needs. Fulfill human needs. Okay, we need fertility. There's an app for that. I.e., a God for that. You need uh, rain. There's a God for that. You need this. You need the sun. There's a God. All these gods. They created gods. Right. Exactly what you're saying. Based on human needs. And, and, and one of the things about having an irrational God. Something beyond thought, because as long as you can figure out a reason why you should do something, you can figure out a reason why you shouldn't. Exactly. You don't have to do it. Exactly. And then, and what happens is, in in, in that devotion to a supreme being, because we all have that, you know, godly soul, so that what happens is when we respect the God within each of us. Because it's something that's super rational. It's not. That's a great point. That's a great point. What they accomplish or what they do or anything. It's just that, that it, it's, it's, it's. Yeah. And, and so the thing is that if you take it, if we let it be determined by uh, rationale, we can figure out some reason why to get over it. And w- but I think what the last point that you're saying is very powerful. Why to hate somebody else? 
because they're not like me, they don't look like me, they don't dress like me, they don't act like me, they don't think like me. Whereas if it's about the divine and an absolute surrender and a, a sacredness of that divine divine element, both without and within, then I need to have absolute respect for the other person who also has that soul. 100%. That's why in Tanya, he segues from this idea as with regard to God, and in chapter 32 he says, and based on this we can understand the commandment of to love your fellows yourself. He says, because if you put your body first, which includes the mind, the mind is part of the body, if you put your body first, you'll never love somebody as yourself. It will always be contingent. Whereas if you put your soul first, then just like we're surrendering absolutely to God, even as we use our mind, etc., but there's this foundational surrender, if you will, to something greater, then we're surrendering also to that element within the other. And it's even though I don't understand them, even though I don't, I don't, it's, it's, we're so different. It doesn't matter. Because at the core of that human being lies something that is absolutely divine. Did the Greeks not believe in They did. They did. They had a different concept of a soul. They had a different concept of God. I mean, the Greeks had, say, we believed in God. The, the Greeks didn't believe in God. I mean, we're discussing this right now. They had many gods. And they're creating gods in their image. The flip side, I'd rather focus on. So, back then and today, there was a lot of amazing learning and good things that the Greeks. 100%, yeah. So, what was the message? We don't go your way because you don't believe our way. What was the message? There's amazing depth with what you have, and we're going to figure out how to incorporate what parts make sense into your there were different approaches taken throughout history. Some said, whoa, we got to distance out the Greek influences. Maimonides, for example, though, included the Greek philosophy in his writings, and he got flat from his contemporaries. Eventually, he was, you know, the first burning of books, Jewish books, happened by Jews. It was Jew on Jew burning burning the, the works, the philosophical works of Maimonides because there was too much Greek influence there. Maimonides lived in the 1100s. So, that was the first ever burning of Jewish books. Jews burning the works of Maimonides. And those that were behind it eventually apologized, not apologized, they re- deeply regretted what they had done. A few years later, you had the big burning of the Talmud in France public burning of many volumes of Talmud and other works by non-Jews. So what's the point? To answer your question, there were those that said, wait, this is a different worldview. We don't want this to confuse our worldview. We've got we to put up the ghetto walls. Others said, it's not totally not kosher. I mean, a, a lot of it is. Once it, once it hits past... past was, the, the concept that it's got to be all rational... And no, no surrender to something absolute. So at that point, we got to draw the line. But up, up until then, can we, can we integrate some of the teachings? Absolutely. And today, that's really the angle that's taken. Although you do see different communities. You see there are communities that are more insular, that will not take any secular influences. In New York, and Williamsburg, etc., they'll put up the walls. Me, it's, it's not inconsistent. 
Correct. A hundred percent. No, there's you talk about Passover is the is the is the holiday of the child and the holiday of the question, the four questions. It's about provoking, you know, we dip things, we do we do weird things straight up, strange customs. And the reason, the stated reason in the Code of Jewish Law is so why do you do that? Exactly. That's why we do it. To evoke that question. To pique the interest of the participants and the child and the child within to say, wait, well, why are we doing this? Because once you have a question, now you have an opening to give an answer and to see something new. So there's no doubt that the mind, the rationale, the questioning, the, the discussion, that process is huge, is critical to, to Judaism. At the same time, as we read in the Torah portion yesterday, the foundation of Torah was Naseh, then Vinishma. First we'll do, and then we're going to question, understand, and discuss what we're doing. But the foundation is, it's like in a relationship. The foundation of any healthy relationship is, to, I say to my beloved, I'm, I'm here for you, I'm here to do what you want. And then let me figure it out. But if it's, nah, I don't know if I agree with that, I'm actually not going to do that for you. That doesn't show a complete commitment to the other party. There's something lacking there. So the first element in any, in any relationship is the ability to get out of yourself. To be able to truly be there for the other. To be there for the other unconditionally, no strings attached. Purely because that's what they want. And this is an element that, that is very central to the Jewish experience. And one that would have gotten lost had we totally taken on the Greek way of thinking. So we could have, let's say, theoretically at that time, kept Torah and Mitzvot. We could have pretty much done everything as we were doing. Business as usual. Jewish business as usual. Wrapping tefillin, putting up mezuzot, eating kosher, observing the Shabbat. Everything, the holidays, as usual. But with one twist. One twist being that it's because we understand it and because it makes sense. The problem is, you take that that path, and you keep on going, the argument I made a few weeks ago is that Judaism wouldn't be around today. Because if it's totally... How about that? How about that? Dramatic. Wouldn't be here and the lights go out. That was the day the lights went out. You've been a great audience. Thank you so much for coming. The argument I made a few weeks ago, and I'm still sticking by the argument, is that had we made that slight adjustment to be, it's not about God anymore, it's really about kind of us and what makes us feel good or what we understand. A few generations in, a few hundred years later, I mean, this is a story that happened over 2,300 years ago. In in 2,300 years, we wouldn't have been committed, Shabbos wouldn't have been Shabbos, because maybe it's more convenient to do it on a Tuesday. You know, let's, let's do it on a... Once the mind gets involved, and there's nothing absolute. And we see this in relationships. Human rela- we know this in human relationships. Once, once it becomes about me and how I understand and how I relate and how I project on the other, well then, you know, I'm going to buy my wife a set of golf clubs for her birthday. Because I like golf clubs. It becomes about me, it becomes about what I think and what I like, and it's no longer about purely focusing on the other. So this, this, was a, this is and was a very critical component of Judaism. And it's something that the Maccabees, the story of Hanukkah, they felt it important enough and critical enough to actually fight for. 
Today what we're going to discuss is the fact that when the Maccabees fought with his self-sacrifice, his dedication, the super rational. Because again, what's at stake here, the fight was about rationale. It's about... This is in the times of the Second Temple. The Second Temple was destroyed in the year 70 of our Common Era. So this is probably a few hundred uh, years before the Common Era. So we're talking about 2010 plus another few hundred years. The times of... Yeah, I mean, then the, the Syrians were... They were the world power. Yeah, well, no, the Roman destruction happened in the year 70. The Romans got power after. There was a few different kings that were ruling. So there were the, there were the, there were the, Greek, um, the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. But between them, there was the Syrian rise to power. There were Syrian and Assyrians, yeah. And then they gave way to the Romans. The Romans ended up destroying the Second Temple outright. The sages don't have nice things to say about the Romans. So they say that the Romans never really got the Greek philosophy, so they were never really educated. All they were educated was about brutality. Whereas the Greeks, they held in, in, in much higher esteem. As being, they had philosophy, wisdom, they created things. The Assyrians Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, and that's right. And so that's why, when you look at the Jewish works, it says the fight was between the Jews and the Greeks. Not the Greeks. The Assyrians. But the Assyrians were fueled by Greek philosophy. And that's what they were trying to spread. That's what they were trying to, to get out there. Because they were, they were religiously, if you will, dedicated to that. The point is, the fight was about rationale. Can we reduce our service of God to a rational argument? To something that can be put into a box and well understood. And the Jews said no, and the Greeks said yes. The Greeks, the Syrians, etc. So how do you fight that? How do you fight the rationale? Forget then. How do you fight it today? When you feel like you're rationalized everything. When you feel like you're stuck. And you can't take that next step because you're overthinking it. It's like, I know I need to do something. I know it from a place beyond knowing that I need to do something. Because if I know it from a place of knowing, then it's still rational. So I know it from a place deeper than knowing. I know it from my gut, my kishkas. I know it from my soul. I know I need to do something to be something, to go, to go somewhere, whatever it is. I need to do something, but I know it from within, not, not here. But here, my head is saying, don't do it, don't do it, it's scary, it's dangerous, it's suicide, it's giving up everything. That You know, all the arguments that our mind goes through. So how do you fight it? How do you win the battle against the mind? That's the question. The question then, the question now. It's also the we meditate using your mind still. So good luck. Good luck getting out of your head by using your head. That's like trying to pick up yourself. You ever try to pick? You can pick up somebody else. You can like you can, right. You can pick up somebody else. You ever try to pick up yourself? By your, especially by your yarmulke. Oh, hey, look at that. That totally separates out. Like, what are you going to do? Like, can't do it. Yeah, I mean, you can jump. Eastern meditation, yeah. Jewish meditation to focus on something. Whatever, but the, the, the quieting the mind is very important. But the problem is, you've got to be careful that you're not getting it stuck in a place of mind as you're trying to conquer the mind. So the way we describe it, chapter 6, the way we describe it in the mystical teachings is that this is, the response needs to be 
something that is irrational. In other words, doing what it takes. In other words, telling the mind, it's not your turn anymore. It's the turn to act. So who's telling that? Is it the mind that's telling the mind? Is it the soul that's telling the mind? It's probably the soul that's telling the mind. Or it's the soul that's acting. And the question is, so how are you open to the soul's influence? It's by quieting the mind. It's really about getting rid of the mind, letting, putting the mind to the side, and allowing what you know in a, from a place beyond knowing, what you know to be true, to be right, to be necessary, to come out. We explained that last week in the context of something instinctual. When a child, when your child is in danger... You don't make the rational consideration of, okay, well, wait, if I try to save my child, maybe I'm putting my life in danger, maybe this, maybe that. You don't, there are certain things that are so instinctual. The situation demands a response, and you tell the mind, or you don't even tell the mind, but the mind just has to get out of the way. Because the soul comes pouring forth. The soul is more powerful than the mind. The mind is a tool of the soul. The chachma, bina, das, the intellectual powers of the soul, are powers of the soul, but they're not the soul. The soul trumps in the rock, paper, scissors of spiritual stuff. You with me? The mind might be the scissors, but the soul, soul is rock. Now, Paper. paper. Ah, paper. We've been, we've been, for years, we've been struggling to figure out the mystery of paper. That's such a rabbi response. Isn't it? Ah, paper. Just deflect it. Yeah. Ah, I'll tell you a story about paper. <laughs> How about a joke about paper? Oh, yeah. They say if it's a hard question, you tell a joke. If it's a really hard question, you tell a story. <laughs> if it's a really, really hard question, you tell both. No, you tell about what they tell you in rabbi school, which is what I just told you. <laughs> but paper, I don't know. You got me. Uh, yeah. But here's the deal. The mind, some, see, to, to use the mind to quiet the mind is just more of the same. You may still get stuck. I mean, you, or you may think that you're going beyond the mind, but you're still stuck in the same place. And you'll realize that probably shortly thereafter. Like, I thought I made a breakthrough, but I, there's really no breakthrough here. I'm really back where I started. The true breakthrough comes from, comes when, as I said last week, this was like the last thing we said last week, it's almost like you're not making the choice, the choice is making you. It's something so necessary, so deep, the situation calls for such a powerful response from the soul, that it's not that my mind chooses the response, but the response chooses me, I can't not choose that response. It's again, the child in danger. Choosing the will to live. Or, as has been discussed, as we've discussed many times, and it's also contained here in Tanya, I brought a copy of the Tanya here. Historically, when Jews were put to the ultimate test and said, either renounce your Judaism, or be killed here on the spot, when the Jews said, even though they weren't the most religious to previously, they weren't always living by the letter of the law, etc., but when put to that test, when they said, I will never renounce my Judaism. I will never give up my true identity, my soul identity, my connection with God. At that moment, that choice was not a rational choice. Because the rational choice is, look, what's the big deal? You're so, you're so dedicated to it yesterday, the day before. No. Live another day. You want to be religious? You'll be religious tomorrow. At least live another day. 
But when the Jew said, I will never give up my connection with God, I'm not going to bow down to the cross. Even if you burn me alive right now, God forbid. The Jew that said that, not the religious Jew, the non-religious Jew that said that, it's because their soul came out at that point. Their soul that was covered in layers and layers of, of what we would call rationalization, of look, I'm, not, I'm still connected, I'll be connected more one day, or whatever it is, I'm working on a connection. But when push came to shove, when they were backed against the wall, Push into the corner, any other cliche you can come up with, their soul came out and they couldn't not choose that. It's a, it's a choice that they don't make, it's a choice that makes them. It's a choice that makes them. I don't mean what makes them great, what makes them famous, it's not what I mean. I mean that the choice chooses them. Because you can't not choose. How can you choose anything other than who you are? See, if you tell yourself, I'm still, I, I am still who I am, even though I'm, it's like a spouse that is cheating and saying, look, I still love my spouse, but on the side I'm doing X, Y, and Z. But I st- I'm still in love. I'm still in love. I'm still dedicated. So you say, wait a second. Something's wrong with this picture here. You're still dedicated, but all of this other stuff on the side, my high, that's like Hebrew Yiddish for, what's up? Like how do you how do you uh, how do you how do you justify this? You you love her you 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 care about her you're committed to her but, but but this well it's a business trip well it doesn't really it's not this it's not that it's not this definition it's not Clinton's that but whatever it is what I'm, I'm starting to get into so it's not so I'm starting to get so so the question because the mind can rationalize anything. You say, I'm still in love, I'm still dedicated, and it's going to stop soon, and then I'll get back, and I'm, I, never, I never really left, I never really turned away. You rationalize anything. But then there are certain points in time where you realize that if I do this, it's over. Because this is going to... With this action, it's done. No turning back from this one. And that one I can't do. Whatever it is. We all have those lines. Until we break them. But we all have those lines. Right? We... Problem is we get close to those lines and then they've stopped becoming lines. But we all have those lines. Even though we've maybe gone over a few of them. But they're always red lines. Whatever they are. Relationships in other areas. Doesn't make a difference. Lines in which we say that if I go over here, there's no turning back. So I can't do it. Why? Because it means too much to me. I can no longer rationalize. This is what it says in Tanya chapter 18. Chai, chapter 18 of Tanya. Talks about the greatest testament to, the, to Judaism and the soul doesn't lie in those that are, that are deeply religious. Where do you see Judaism? Where do you see the power of the soul? In those that are not so deeply religious. Quote-unquote religious. I don't, I don't like those terms, but... Quote-unquote religious. Those that would say to themselves, you know what, I'm really not a good Jew. Maybe they would say, maybe they would say that about themselves. It's in those that you see the power of Judaism. Because those self-proclaimed not a good Jew, not a great Jew, not the best Jew I could be, nonetheless, historically, gave up their lives for their Judaism. That's the power of the soul. 
Because otherwise, the power of the soul being in the fellow that's stuck in the, in the study hall studying Talmud all day, that doesn't have the power of the soul. You see the power of the soul there? I don't see the power of the soul. I see the power of the mind, maybe the ego. I feel good about myself for studying. Show me the power of the soul. The power of the soul, the irrational soul, is where it doesn't make sense for me to, take, to make this move, to take this step, to take this stand. And I'm doing it anyway, because of my soul, because of my connection with God. That's the soul. That's what happened with the Maccabees. That happened in the story of Hanukkah. They felt that they, there was about to, that the Greek influence was about to cause Judaism as a whole to cross over a line. And what's the line? The line from being about God, this whole movement, Judaism, monotheism, begun from Abraham, that was about God, now we're reducing it once again to about the human being. To about the mind, to about what we like, what feels good for us. That's not Judaism anymore. And they felt that we cannot let that line be blurred or crossed. Crossed or blurred even. And so they came out with force. And they fought. And they fought. They literally fought. They, they banded together. Guerrilla warfare. They fought. We know the story. They fought against the Greek, against the, the Syrians. And the war didn't make sense. We know that it was the few against the many. And it was the weak against the mighty. That's what we say in the prayers. And nonetheless, a miracle happened and we drove them back. But when you look at the war, it wasn't a rational war. It didn't make sense. What are you fighting for? You're not going to win. How can you fight? It's a losing battle. You're fighting against an organized army? A bunch of Maccabees? What are you guys doing? That's the point. Because you can't fight the rational fight. You can't fight the war of rationale with a rational, uh, with a rational response. Does that make sense? Can't, if, the, if the Greek influence is one of rationale, you can fi- how can you fight it with a rational... Imagine that the, the Maccabees said, look, we're not going to fight you. What we're going to do is we're going to debate you. You know what the problem is? You're still reducing it to an argument. Now you're going to argue why Judaism is a better argument, better, better logical construct than Greek philosophy. You're still stuck in the mind. The only response, and forget about the Greeks, forget, forget about ancient history now, for us. You feel like you're getting stuck in your comfort zone. You feel like you're getting stuck in negative thought patterns. You feel like you're getting stuck in the status quo. And you know from your kishkas that you need to grow. You need to move forward. You need to get beyond. You need to break out of whatever shell that you're in to truly achieve your potential. So how do you do that? With a rational argument? You've got to take an irrational step. You've got to just jump in. You've got to just jump in. But you're saying the mind is choosing to jump in. Also, you, you take the irrational step. Then you fall back into rationalizing whether that irrational step was irrational. worthwhile. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that the mind is always with us. There's absolutely no doubt that the mind is with us. But what we're saying is if we don't take that step, understood. if we don't take that jump, if we don't take that leap of faith, You'll never get there. where are we going to be at? We're going to be stuck. You tell a child, you know what the scariest thing in the world that you ever learned was? 
how to walk. The scariest thing ever. You had to trust yourself. You didn't trust yourself because you never did it before. I remember like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) But I saw you walk two days ago. (laughs) I'm kidding. I said like it was yesterday. You know how scary that is to walk? There you are, just having learned how to balance on those two little chubby, cute little legs. I got, I got a two-year-old myself. So they're standing on those legs, and then they fall down. You know, they fall down, they're cute, they fall down. Not, you know, not in a dangerous way. And then you want them, okay, let's take a step. That concept of picking up a leg and trusting that that one is going to stay there, and that one's going to come down safely, it, that is an incredible leap of faith. But it worked. And you, and you know, know it worked, and you, you have concrete evidence that it worked. It's not, it's not... It's we, got, we got our brain, we got our brain expert right here. You're not really thinking about it. I mean, that's really, it's much, it's oh, involuntary. I don't know enough to, to get, to step into this, how much do we know, what do we know? I'll tell you this. But here's the thing, here's the thing. I want to tell you one thing. Okay, fine, more than one thing. But here's, here's one thing to start. And that is, that imagine if we got stuck in the mind and couldn't take that step. But okay, so you just... What you're telling me is that, yeah, but after you've taken the rational step, but isn't your danger of falling back into rationale? And my answer is absolutely, absolutely. But that doesn't negate the fact that you need to take sometimes an irrational step. Sure. So that's my point. But the, you're doing it under... Rational. Pretense that something rational and concrete or something worthwhile is happen. Right, so, so you uh, kind of say, okay, good, good, good. If I live kosher, and if I live kosher, then what? No, 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 that's the point. That's what the Greeks wanted to say. You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do kosher. I'm going to do a little more kosher today. You know what? Instead of buying that meat, I'm going to spend the extra three bucks. I'm going to buy the other meat. Why? Yeah, maybe my kitchen's not kosher. Maybe this is, but you know what? I got to start somewhere. Why? Why? I don't know. Because God wants me to. Not about me. Because if it's about me, I may get st- I may get held so back by I'm me. Saying is, as long as you do what God wants you to, that's you'll be all right. That's the ultimate. I don't know if you'll be all right. Maybe you won't be all right. <laughs> maybe you'll be worse than you. Maybe you'll be worse than you started. It could be. But you know what? But you're with God. So how bad could it be anyway? The point is not about, okay, wait, so if I do this and that, so show me, show me the money. Show me the money, right? Jerry Maguire, is it Jerry Maguire? So what's the point? The point is, I want to bring it back again. We can look at it from a historical place. We can look at it from a mystical place. We can, many different ways that you, can, that you can approach it. And they're all true and they're all simultaneous. But let's talk about it in our own lives. Let's, let's get away from kosher for a second, if kosher is a little too scary. Let's talk about any challenge in life that we have. Any challenge. Fear of commitment in a relationship. Fear of... I don't whether know. to take a new job. Whether, whether to, to take a new job. Whether to do this, whether to do that. Anything. Any big step in life. Career change. It doesn't matter. It's like, okay, wait a second. So my mind says... Okay, but what's going to happen? What about this? What about that? Don't worry about it. We're talking about different things. Because the mind is a broad term, right? So when you talk about fear of something, that's one part. Right? Fears are, when you talk about instinct blocking, those 
Right. The Greeks were talking about pure rational logic, trying to get away from you know, fears and you know, trying to be logical. So it's a different part, right? So you have to kind of like think through what you know what the Greeks are. But to say it's the Greeks from the logical part, kind of trying to get away from all those more human, lower level kinds of things, up to the highest level of the mind. Correct. The highest level of the mind. And from there they believe that you could do all. And that was the conflict, the fundamental thing of no. Right? And that's really what, what your message is. Exactly. When you talk about the soul knows that I'm Jewish and I'm not going to give it up, eh, a lot, that's called identity and the ego. And the ego never wants to give something up. And there's lots of examples of, you know, where it's not coming from a soul place. Right. Okay, so, getting careful. I mean, that's not the best way to do it. No, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, the reason why I shared that is because that's what it says in the books. So that's that's the strongest example that's stated in the books. I mean, we can come up with our own examples, but I, I'm going to accept that, accept it as a, as a, as a pure example of this concept or of this of this reality, and that is that your core identity, your core identity is so powerful that at a certain point it will come. It when it feels like it's being threatened, its very existence is being threatened. It will come out and say, "That's it." You're not going to threaten me, and this is this is who I am. This is my identity. This is the core reality of who I am. The way I look at it is, at any point in your life, you have beliefs that you're prepared to die for. Right. But 20 years later, your beliefs might change. The things that never change are God talking to you. That's that part that doesn't change. Good. Good. Exactly. The hard thing is, at any point in time, knowing those differences. How do I know that it's a strong belief I'm willing to die for versus the fundamental truth? Good, perfect, perfect. And so, so the, the 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 classic way of, of, of figuring that out is, you know, what what we believe that if it's in the Torah, then it's what God wants. So that's that's a that's a very clear. And in addition, you know, there's other there's other areas that that may or may not be included. But clearly, the stuff, the mitzvot, what what Torah tells us is this is what I want you to do, etc. These are these are the areas that uh, that we are. That we feel that okay, this is God requesting, asking us. This is what this is what He wants us to do. Yes, that's an acting. But here's the deal. <laughs> it's not rational. I'm trying to tell a Joker story. No, neither. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll tell the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. It's not rational. It could be rational, but it's not. It's not. It wasn't rational in the story of the Maccabees. Because they could have easily said, "You want us to? You want? You don't really want a fundamental change here. You you're going to allow us to do the Torah, to study Torah, and keep the mitzvot. So we're going to do that. All you want to do is introduce some philosophy into the mix. You want us to think more logically and to try to understand everything, and not just do it as an act of submission to a higher power. That makes sense. We're going to do that." We see the light. It makes sense. We're going to evolve as a people. We're no longer going to just do it because it says it in the Torah. We're going to try to figure out why it says it in the Torah. How is it to our benefit? How does it make me a better person? How does it make my family stronger? How does it make me happier? And it's all, it's all sounds like a fantastic pursuit. problem is, if that's the totality of it, A, there's no relationship with God. It's a relationship with self. And B, it's not true. That's what they were fighting for. They were fighting for their relationship with God. And they were fighting for what they believed was true. I.e., that this is the divine will. Will, as we said in chapter 5, that transcends logic, transcends reason. 
will, a want, that as Rabbi Taub said last Saturday night, a want makes no sense. A need makes sense. Someone says, I need something, okay, I can, I can understand why you need it. A want, wants make no sense. God says, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. Why? Because I want. Question is, are we, are, we, are we ready to do that? Not from a rational place. There's no problem using rationale also. The mind is not evil. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that can be the upper limit of the experience of the connection with God. Because if it is, we're severely limited. It's severely limiting. Don't you run into uh, a problem where maybe you accept some things because you think, oh, God said this is the way God is directing it. This is divine providence. Nothing I can do about no, that. No, 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 because Judaism doesn't believe in fatalism. That's fatalism. Fatalism is, well, that's the fate, that's the destiny, I can't change it. Yeah. The same Torah that says, do this mitzvah, do that mitzvah, also says, don't believe in fatalism, don't believe in omens, don't, 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 um, um, so what I'm looking for, don't consult um, uh, soothsayers and palm readers and all that stuff. It's not about, okay, what do the stars say? You know, I've, I speak a lot on astrology, as you may know. And in astrology, it's all about, okay, what does the future hold? Judaism says, forget about the future. It doesn't make a difference. If it's, if, it's in the stars, if it's meant to be good in the stars, what, I can sit on my hands and the, the, the million dollars will come my way? No, I still have to work for it. And if it's not meant to come my way, I can't change it? Of course I can change it. That's the power of, that's the, power of the connection we have with God. We have direct access to the author. So it's like you're handed a script. The stars are the script. You're handed the script. And you say, hmm, that's a crummy character. That's a, that's a terrible scene. I don't like that scene. So what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to you're going to consult the the fellow the runner that handed you the script, or you go to the author. Just go to the author. You go to the uh, the screenwriter if you want something changed. But we don't believe in fatalism. So the same God that says, "This is what I want," also says, "Don't accept everything that's thrown at your way. That's thrown your way. Doesn't mean that you should reject God in the process." But in accepting God in the process, in, in accepting God as behind the process, you can reject what's happening. In other words, you can say to God, because I believe in you, I therefore demand that you change this. Because I believe in you, not despite my belief. Yeah. That's what prayer is. Changing the reality. The reality is good, why do we need to pray? Prayer is, Yehiratsa, may it be your will. May it be your will that X, Y, and Z happen. What does it mean, may it be your will? Either it's your will or it's not your will. So no, even if it's not your will, may it be your will. Create a new will. You, God, can create anything. You don't have to keep this, this situation here. That's, that's part of... Judaism is not, is not, it's not just a mitzvah in isolation or a one idea in isolation. It's a whole, it's a whole framework of belief, of a mitzvah, of study, of question. It's a whole framework. But an essential part of it is that it's divine. And that at the end of the day, whether I understand it or not, when I do it, I'm essentially connected. And that is something that the Jews, the Maccabees, did not want to let go of. Did not want to let the the, the Greek philosophy rip that away. In a sense, losing their innocence. See, we all have innocence in things we believe in. Whether it's the tooth fairy, or 
Hanukkah Harry, <laughs> whatever. Right? We all things that we believe in <laughs> as kids. And then comes along the rational mind and says, you really believe in that? And by the way, you shouldn't really believe in a tooth fairy. But there are things that we should believe in. You know, the first time somebody lies to you, you realize that you can't take people, can't take everyone by their word. That rocks your world. Not in a good way. That shakes you to your core. What about a parent? First time a parent does it to a child? Wow. And parents are human beings. So how's that not going to happen? But the first time that happens, a child who looks to their parent as, as everything, and the parent says something that's not true, misleads them, etc. Devastating. Loss of innocence. The Greeks were trying to whether consciously or subconsciously, trying to cause the Jew to lose the innocence. Pure faith in God. Along with reason, along with along with study, etc. But that, at the end of the day, that pure... If God said it, we're going to do it, whether we understand it or not. We're going to try to understand it, but if we don't, we're still going to do it. And the Greeks said, eh, don't be so dedicated. Don't be so... Don't be so irrational. Bring them... So what I want to say, I want to mention a few things. First of all, I don't think that Judaism falls in the same category as some of the other. I'm not an expert in other religions. Not even not an expert. I'm not well versed or even versed at all in other religions. It's not my specialty. Um, when I was choosing my specialty, I, I chose to focus uh, on uh, on Judaism. But here's the deal. Have there been things that Torah says that have been found not to be the case? No. I don't, I don't know of any example. In all of the challenges against religion, against how do we know it's true, has there been one statement that Torah said that's been proven false? No, 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 no. but now we're... Understand that, we're, but we're saying now. But isn't there a limit to God's word? Also, my response is no. That's my response, and I, I would back it up by saying I, there's nothing that Torah says. There might be how we interpret it. Is the interpretation changing? But even that, you look at the Talmud; it's pretty rock solid. It's pretty solid. The Talmud was written 1,700 years ago. I mean, it, it, 
Judaism. No, the Talmud is people for sure. Yeah, yeah. right. But people that were that were you know attuned, if you will, to the best of their ability. But even that is pretty rock solid. What I'm saying is, you know, you look at Torah's values. Human being created in the image of God, absolute value of human life. That works. Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. Don't kill, don't steal. Believe in God. These are all pretty rock solid. Don't covet. Are there laws that maybe are hard to understand? Absolutely. But that's that's where this discussion comes in comes in, you know. Are we are we meant to understand everything? Yeah. Can I ask you something? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Not only not only did Eve rationalize, that was the first introduction of rationalization. Because the tree is called Eitz Hadat Tovarah, the tree of knowledge. I had the tree of rationalization. What does the Torah say about evolution? Torah talks about Look, these are all topics that really require a, a full... These are, these are good questions, but these are topics that take us a little bit off, off. So I just want to address it very, very quickly. The very quick on one foot answer is that Torah speaks about creation, not evolution. The mystics speak about a spiritual evolution of sorts, but as far as things actually being created, as far as the things that we see, the Torah talks about God creating Adam and Eve, God creating the human being, not evolving. So what do we do with science? Because that's the question of, that you asked that I didn't address. So what do we do about science? What about the date of the world, the date of the universe? What do we do about all these things? So as we discussed a little bit last week, even science will say, with a big bang and evolution, so where did that come from? Where are the original pieces, original matter, original uh, particles, information, whatever? That collided. Where did, they, where did that come from? Aliens. Where did the aliens come from? Yeah, they're calling now. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Huh? Yeah, that's that's the red phone <laughs> in the green room. But here's the point. Here's the point. It's not about. Here's the deal. The Rebbe said this many times. The Rebbe was a Lubavitcher Rebbe. Passed away in 1994. He studied at Sorbonne University. He was a he was a he was an engineer. He worked in Brooklyn Navy Yard. He worked in World War II on different projects, classified projects for the for the Pentagon for the U.S. government. Here's the point. And he was also a uh, a, a Jewish scholar. He said that if anybody ever says that there's a contradiction between Torah and science, it means one of two things. One of three things: either they don't know Torah, or they don't know science. Or they don't know both. But if you really know Torah, and you really know science, you'll know that there's no contradiction. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. What, what can you say? If you really know science, a real scientist will say, we don't know. We have guesses. But a real scientist, a real scientist, not an egoist scientist, 
But a real scientist will say that we are just observing what we have in front of us to the best of our scientific ability, based on the information that we know now. Projecting back then. Projecting. Ah, this is Talmudic already. Ah, what about the fact that there might have been atmospheric changes then that would have produced different results that we don't have around today? Pre-flood versus post-flood? So the fact that you're measuring something today based on atmospheric conditions today might not be a valid projection for a time long ago. We don't know, because we can't know. But science, so there's no flaw in science. Science is perfectly doing what it needs to do, which is study what's in front of us based on the tools that we have, the information that we have, and the minds that we have. That's the extent of science. But any true scientist will tell you that we don't speak in absolutes. And what we thought was absolute is always changing. I mean, look at quantum physics. That makes no sense. Makes no sense. Einstein had trouble accepting quantum physics. you know this? Einstein, Einstein, nice Jewish boy, had issues with quantum because he couldn't, couldn't box it in. So what's the point? The point is, I trust those that knew Torah and knew science when they said that if you really know Torah and you really know science, there's no contradiction. And I believe that there's no contradiction. And that's why it gets into a very dangerous game when religion, I don't religion, I'm not speaking for religion, when Judaism will ap- apolog- getting into apologetics. Well, you're right, science, you're right, maybe the Torah needs to be modified a little bit to fit that, because you know what, in 10 years, you realize you didn't have to backtrack. We just found something that just turns everything on its head, and you know what, it looks like it's more corroborating what it says in Torah than, uh, than contradicting. Science is a process. Talk about evolution. Science is evolution. Science is man evolving, trying to understand things. There's, no, there's nothing wrong. There's, nothing, there's no flaw in that process. But it really doesn't have anything to do with Torah. Because Torah speaks of a, di- of a different nature. In general, Torah speaks of a different nature. Science speaks to the what. Torah speaks to the why. So you want to know, you want to know how we got here. Evolution, that's how we got here. Why? So, the, as I said last week, one of the convenient, um, one of the convenient consequences of evolution of some of these scientific theories, which are theories, is that maybe there's no reason. There's no reason why we're here. Which, which lets us off the hook. Because if there's no reason why we're here, then there's no responsibility to do anything while we're here. There's no absolute responsibility. We can choose a responsibility. We can choose to infuse our meaningless existence with meaning. But there's no absolute reason why we should. If it's all evolution, if it's all Big Bang, if it's all just random. But there's a central question in every human being that goes down to meaning. A hundred percent. When a child asks, where do babies come from? I've said this many times. A kid asks, where do babies come? And the parents turn red. It's like, oh no, I didn't read the book. How am I supposed to answer the question? Oh, there's birds and bees. I don't even know what birds and bees do. Like, what do I know about birds and bees? Bees. Yeah, like... I don't know. They can sting. They... I don't even know. I don't know. 
And meanwhile, meanwhile, as if you've been here before, you know that the, really what the child is asking is, where do we come from? Where do we, is there a purpose? Is there a reason? Because there's always an innate sense of one. And, and, but again, the, the science is... The po- I, I No, 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 no. Torah doesn't have a fear. Here's the thing. That's why I said the difference between Judaism and other religions. Other religions may have a... And I can't speak for other religions. But if if a religion is afraid, oh no, don't study that because you may uncover something that just destroys our whole premise. Well then, come on, that's not confidence. That's not really believing that this is what God said. If this is really believing in God's word, this is what God said, then you have no issue. You're not going to discover anything that... You're never going to discover anything factually that will... It's the same thing you're talking about here with the Greeks, though. That there was a point where they said no, because, you know, it was scary to some. Right? For them, yeah. The same natural... Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's a threat to my identity and my belief system. I know it's true. So it's, it's a human condition. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Isn't Kabbalah also about evolution of the soul? Yeah. Well, there's a spiritual evolution. There are worlds and everything. There is that, that's why I said there's, there's a, there is an evolutionary process. But Torah says that God created Adam and Eve. It doesn't say that He created this, that then evolved into that, and then came into that, and then da da da, and then, and then Adam and Eve. It doesn't say that. Now, could it be that the narrative is condensed? And that's what it means that God created forces that eventually created Adam and Eve? Possibly. But typically, that's not how it's understood. So then, what do you do with all the fossils, with all the data? Let's let everything play out. There's plenty of time. We can let things. Uh, we can let the conversation continue. But the one thing you'll never get from a true scholar, somebody who's truly familiar with Judaism, is any defensiveness. No need to be defensive. There's no need to be defensive if you say, no matter what, if you knew more about it, you'd see there was no. The Rebbe spoke about the concept of the sun, which rotates around which, the sun around the earth, the earth around the sun. We know the famous d- debate, right? Galileo. Galileo, Copernicus. Yeah, it was a big thing. It also had religious overtones. The Rebbe once made one point in a letter. And again, I'm not a scientist. I can't, I would be in the category of either you don't know science. That's my category. I know a little bit of science. You know, with schooling that I got, I, I studied physics and whatever, but you know, up to a certain point. Here's the point. The Rebbe spoke about the concept of the theory of relativity. And the fact that when two, two objects are moving, or whatever, when you're on one, you can never tell which one is moving and which one is still. You have little points. The point is, when you know enough about science and about Torah, you realize things that seem contradictory, not so contradictory. Somebody once wrote a letter, I've read this letter, where he says, um, we know how large the sun is in relative, relative to, the, to the earth. And yet it says in Maimonides that it's only, it's only 150 or whatever times the, uh, the size of, of planet Earth. The sun is larger than, than the planet Earth. And it's not true. It's thousands of times, or whatever, whatever the ratio, whatever the different numbers were. Rebbe says... This is where he wrote his answer. Like in many questions that pit science against Torah, the questioner may not be so proficient in either one or both. Because there's different ways to measure size. You can measure radius, density, whatever. there's different ways to measure. And based on one of the measurements, you know, circumference, it works out to that exact ratio, based on exactly what we know. And what Maimonides wrote in the 1100s, we're talking about nearly a thousand years ago, is exactly almost to the, to the decimal point, or if not to the decimal, to the decimal point, exactly the, the size, the ratio of the sun to the earth. The point is, when it comes to these questions, it's not 
not such a, such a strong question. So here's what I want to do. We have five minutes. Let's break into chapter 6. We've got to read something. And we'll read, and the truth is, now that we know what we know... Then we really don't know what we don't know. Right, so now that we know what we know, oh, now we're stuck in the mind. But, the good news is, we're going to get into the concept of that which transcends rationale. And we're going to see that this text breaks it down. Oh, one more point. Quick point. Okay, fine, no more points. Go, chapter 6, page 48. To win this war, a rational service of God would not be enough. Even a super supra-rational service that is tied to rationality, a service that stems from the level of makaf, of, of chaya, and the close makaf would not suffice. For the Greeks also contaminated all the oils, all the oils in the sanctuary, meaning even the holy matters that transcend rationality yet are tied to it were contaminated. In other words, what the Greeks said is, you know what, fine, you want to be irrational, okay, but only be irrational, not irrational, you want to do something, not because you understand, but because God said it, fine. But do it because you believe, because you know that the mind has its limitations. So in other words, make a rational decision that it's now time to not be so rational. But you're still, the only reason why you're taking that leap of faith is because of your rational mind. It's like somebody says, okay, I know that if I stay stuck where I am, it's not going to be good. So therefore, I know that I need to take that jump. Guess what? It's a rational jump. That's what you were saying before, I think, right? It's still a rational jump. So when is it not rational? It's not rational when you can't not choose that. Which is the story of Hanukkah. Anyway, so here's the point. They couldn't even have done a super rational service that's based on rationale. Service, what's service? The response could not have been from within and, and from without, whether internally or externally, it could not have been still shaded by rationale. Because that still has its limitations, and that is what the whole fight was against the uh, against the Greeks in the first place. Okay. Does this make sense? This first paragraph. I know we we read Chaya and Klos Makif, but there's five dimensions of the soul: Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, which correspond to the physical experience, the emotional experience, and the intellectual experience. The level beyond that is Chaya, and that's beyond, so right, there's the physical, like action, like stuff that we're doing, stuff that we're feeling, and stuff that we're thinking, stuff that we know. Beyond what we know is super rational, transcends rationale. But that fourth level is still connected somewhat to the rational, because it's, it's, it's only one level up. So it's still, it still touches the mind. So it's, it's the mind saying, oh, we gotta go, we gotta step outside of ourselves for this moment. It's the mind saying, let's turn, our, let's turn off the mind. It's the mind saying, okay, I'll concede this point for a greater purpose. That's still the mind, but it's going beyond the mind, but it's still a little bit mind-driven. So again, nefesh, physical, practical stuff. Emotion, uh, nefesh, ruach. Ruach is the emotional. Neshama is the rational. Chaya, super rational, but still flirting with rationale. What we're saying here is that the, this true breakthrough happens from the fifth dimension. What we would call the quintessential part of the soul. Quint meaning five. The quintessential. The fifth dimension of the soul. Which is called Yechida. Yechida is that singular point of divinity that exists within the soul. That's that basically what we would call the spark or the peace of God that's within us. That's not at all connected with tied into, tied down by the mind. 
Take it away. Winning the war required the service of self-sacrifice, which is to stand firmly against all obstacles, to summon an inherent strength that completely transcends. In the story of Hanukkah, represent, it manifested itself in starting a war that they knew they could not win. They couldn't win this war. It's not like, okay, if we do this, then it's going to happen. They couldn't win this war. There was no way they could win this war. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And they still did it. They still did it from a place that's beyond rationale. Continue. This is similar to self-sacrifice for the sanctification of God's name, which does not stem from any intellectual rationale, but from the fact that it absolutely cannot be any other way. That sanctification of God's name is when the Jew is, is said convert or die, when the person says, I'm not going to give up my, my, my soul identity, even though I haven't been maybe so, so you know, consumed with that way of life, etc., up until now, but bottom line is, I'm not going to let that go. It's a choice, that it can, it's, it's a fact that can, absolutely cannot be any other way. It's not a choice that I'm making from a rational place. It's, I cannot choose that. Continue. This sense stems from the bond of the soul's essence, the level of the soul called Yehida, and the nature of an essential bond that is, that is that it absolutely cannot be any other way, God forbid. How do you know when a bond is essential? It's when it's, it's not, it's when it can't be any other way. That's what he says. How do you know when a bond is essential? If it's up for negotiations, then it's not essential. Then it's conditional, it's contingent. It's contingent on an argument. It's contingent on a belief. It's contingent on a context. It's... If I can choose not to save the child, then it means that there's no essential connection there. If I can't make any other choice, then that means it's an essential connection. Make sense? The more essential the connection, the more it can't be any other way. Again, when a parent sees the child in danger, God forbid a car is coming, whatever, and the parent says, I'm diving in front, pushing out my kid. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to me. Doesn't doesn't make a difference because it's not a choice that I'm making. It's not something I choose. It's something that chooses me. Or more precisely, it's something that is so essential. Such an essential such an essential bond, it absolutely cannot be any other way. And for the Maccabees in the story of Hanukkah, the threat of the Greeks, this whole let's reduce Judaism to a rational argument. That whole thing hit the essential connection with God. That hit them right in the yechida of the soul, which is deeper than the solar plexus. Hit them right in the yechida. And at that point, they said, that's it. We can't, we can't let this happen. We can't argue about it. We can't have a debate about it. We can't philosophize about it. We just have to drive them back. And so they went to battle. Was self-sacrifice. A battle that made no sense to start, made no sense that they would win, and they still did it anyway. And they won at the end. But it's not really about winning. That's too rational. It's about it not it's about not it's about the fact that you can't not fight. Somebody's coming into your home, someone's coming into the home, God forbid, and, and threatening your family. You can't not fight. You can't not fight. Because it's it's your identity, it's your life at stake. This is how they felt it. It's hard to live like this with every moral decision. But we should, ideally. Every moral decision should be a red line that we say, I cannot let this, I can't, I can't cross over that line. It's very difficult to live like that. 
It's very intense. It's like the in between two trapezes. Yeah. Especially if you're off the ground. <laughs> the image that something just come to mind, and one of them is if you just think about a tree, and you look at that inner circle, I think that's where we're getting at, and that with all of the rings around it, it gets, it's harder and harder to get to that, yeah. that central place, but it's there. And the other is just... In, so what gets like, us there sometimes? The pressure from the outside. Yes. Sometimes and it forces us. Sometimes it forces us. See, the challenge in America is you don't really feel the pressure, so I don't need to access that essential connection because I'm okay. I'll do it tomorrow. Still. And I, this is where I think really science, there is a blending, there is a, a real nexus. If you just think about something simple, such as, you know, if you had an experience where you pricked your finger or something. There's a delay between the time that you prick your finger and you actually feel it. Yeah. And it's that moment, and, and when you prick your finger, you pull it away, but you actually don't say ouch for a, a, after that. So your action, your response, that gut is, is yeah. that instinct. Before you, you think before about you it. Before you think about it. Yeah. And, we're, and if you think about how our brains have evolved, it, that we are wired in that way, and it's essentially a brainstem response. And that we have over time, it's become more and more difficult. So our, our outside layers, the most recent one is the neocortex. Our, our rational brain has gotten bigger. And it's gotten us further away from that, what used to be called an animal brain, which is really, which is the, just the, the, the base of the, it's the brain stem. Where how, that how, is our, how big and is our rational brain getting into that one? It's, I'm sorry? How big is our irrational brain It's big. It's really big. I mean, the neocortex has just gotten bigger. But that moment when there's something happening to your child and you don't think about it, that you just, you know, a car is coming and you push yourself, that's that, that's that reaction. But there's so many layers beyond that that allow us to say, no, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that. But I think what you're talking about is that moment of, of just... It's not pulling away, but that moment of just reacting without thinking about it, that we all have, but we live in this world that has just created so many of these circles around us. And, and, and so how, for me, it's like the tension of how do you live in this world, and, but also be able to be in contact with that um, irrational. Or what we would call super rational. Yeah, super rational. Super rational. I, yeah, super sounds better. Amen. Now go spell that. Yeah. <laughs> now you're showing up. <laughs> so here's the point. Here's the point. It's not, it's not easy. Because we live in a world of rationale. We live today more than ever in a Greek type of world. We live. The Greeks look at society. The Greeks took over. The Greeks took over. But not Judaism. Judaism still says, hey, don't mix meat and milk, don't wear wool and linen. Why not? God said so. It's healthy. Not that we should do it because it's healthy. But it is healthy. To let go a little bit. Because as I started today, the mind, as great a gift as it is, gets us into hot water. We can rationalize anything. I'm not, I know I'm rationalizing now, going beyond the rationale, but work with me here. Maybe we can start with Chaya and move our way up. The point is, though, I think we all reach a point. There are all things in our life that happen. That it hits us deep. And even though our mind says one way, 
we know we can't we can't do that. We gotta take some sort of action. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sweet Freeman, yeah. And I remember he said um, that we are born with the knowledge. Yeah. And it's up to us to discover, to unseal. And I think that that knowledge is a knowledge beyond knowing. It's a knowledge, it's, it's more of an inner knowledge. It's like, a, yeah. you know, talk about the part of the brain, the original part of the brain. It's, it's the knowing that's beyond knowing. The knowing that's beyond the the mind's discussion and, 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 and figuring stuff out. And again, it could take many different forms, but from a Jewish context, we're talking about here the this, this soul connection with God. Folks, we got to close it out now because we are past the time. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 6 and break in, please, God, to chapter 7. Um, and...